0: Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Frickman and you're listening to Vibrant Potential, a podcast about all things health. Vibrant Potential is more than a podcast though. It's a conversation. It's a state of optimal living. In the words of the U.S. Army, be all that you can be. Whether you're in the armed forces or not, These are words to live by. I've made it my job to improve the lives of others, specifically in the areas of health. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. But when you're healthy, you can live life to its fullest. Meet your goals, feel joy, and life flowing in you and all around you. To do this, I found out long ago I need some good tools. Some of those tools include functional medicine, functional neurology, applied kinesiology, and many others depending on the situation. Functional medicine has gained a lot of popularity in the past few years. Because of this, more people have heard about it and are seeking it out. If you're a casual, outside observer, you may think a funk med approach means going gluten-free and taking some expensive supplements. Those of you more intimately familiar with functional medicine recognize certain tenets among its practitioners. Primary among these guiding principles is personalization. As a functional medicine doctor, I'm not going to be focused on diagnosing a problem in you and then treating the problem. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to treat you and I'm not going to treat you like everyone else that walks in the door. I'm going to listen. I'm going to treat you, not the disease. Speaking of disease, another tenet of functional medicine is taking a proactive approach to life and to health. Gone are the days you need to wait until something is broken and then hope someone can fix it. Personalized medicine, functional medicine, heck, just good medicine, is about watching for trends. Whether it's because I know someone and I've been treating them for years, or if it's because I've had to take a thorough history. Meaning, I've taken the time to sit down with someone and really unwind their journey up to this point. In functional medicine, we notice subtle changes before they become life-threatening pathologies. Here's an easy example. Diabetes is a disease that kills tens to hundreds of thousands of people every year in the U.S. alone, and that's going by conservative numbers. Diabetes affects so much in the body that the numbers are really higher. The classic way to diagnose diabetes is to obtain a fasting blood sugar, and if it's 125 and below, you don't have diabetes, go home, you're fine. And if it's 126 or above, you do have it, and we better get you on some meds to manage this sucker. Now, that's just bad medicine. A good functional medicine doc is going to look at trends. If your blood sugar is, say, 85, that's probably fine. But if your blood sugar has been 72 for the past five years and now it's 85 this morning, we want to look at why, always why. Let's get to the root cause of what's going on here, people. We need to stop treating the symptoms and start looking upstream to what the causes of the disease are in the first place. Be those reasons physiologic, spiritual, mental, or emotional, chemical, or bioelectric, there's a reason your fasting blood sugars are rising, and we need to find it. If the reason is that you're depressed because your mom just passed away and you've recently replaced your daily run with a tub of ice cream, there's probably some mourning that needs to take place. There might be other strategies that we need to employ. It's probably not the right answer to throw some glucophage at the situation. Do you see what I mean? We don't have to wait to be broken. We can seek more now. I'm not here to tell you what you should want out of life. I'm here when you want more out of life. Want more strength, speed, or flexibility? Check. Looking for improved mental clarity, better memory, and more focus and drive? Check. Do you desire better relationships through emotional wellness and cultivating an inner peace? Check. This is the spirit in which I've developed Habitat Retreats with my partner, Dr. Chamonix. In an upcoming episode of Vibrant Potential, I'm going to ask Dr. Chamonix to share her story with you. It's honestly one of cancer and one of pain, but it's also a story of healing and happiness. If you want to know more about how Habitat Retreats came to be or how to attend one yourself, you can visit today's show notes at drchrisfrickman.com slash Carrick or you can go to habitatretreats.com. For now, though, long story short, Chamonix had a revelation along her healing journey that health only happens in the right environment. A plant can't grow without light or water, can it? Well, a human also needs certain conditions to be just right for optimal growth and expansion. These habitat retreats have become my preferred method for providing care for people looking for improved health And improve function because there's simply no other way to incite the kinds of changes we've seen in a week's time at these retreats. Sometime soon, I'll share some of what we do at the retreats, but suffice it to say, I've seen patients make more dramatic brainwave shifts in one week than some people see in a lifetime. Brainwave shifts equal transformation. For me, the heart of functional medicine is transformation. Everything I do in this podcast, at my clinic, at the Habitat Retreats, is about transformation. I want to see function improve. But how do we know you're functioning better? If you're a runner, that might mean running a 15-minute 5K instead of a 20-minute 5K. Or maybe you're pushing your VO2 max up or your anaerobic threshold down. Or it might mean just finishing a 5k and being earnestly happy about that because you're out there helping yourself to be healthy every day. You're not out there to compete and beat other people. For you, winning is about not dying of a heart attack at 52 like your dad did. So all of this is fine and dandy if you're a runner. Some of those metrics might make sense and they might give you some feedback about if you're going in the right direction. Have you ever met someone that looked fit on the outside one day and died the next day of a heart attack? There are better ways to measure growth and human performance, and there are better ways to initiate the types of changes that you are seeking. Enter Dr. Carrick and functional neurology. Professor Ted Carrick has maintained an international specialty practice for 37 years. He's taught clinical neurology around the world to physicians from all disciplines, including myself, and is considered the father of functional neurology. He has been the subject of an Emmy award-winning PBS documentary, Waking Up the Brain, as well as countless other TV, newspaper, magazine articles. Dr. Kerrick holds professorships in neurology at several institutions. He holds four board certifications in neurology and nine fellowship credentials. That's a lot if you don't know. Professor Carrick is a published researcher in the field of neurology, and he completed his postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School. He's the principal investigator in several ongoing investigations designed to improve the diagnosis and treatment of traumatic brain injury. He has special interests in movement disorders traumatic brain injury, and sports concussions, and has even treated people with coma, which we touch on in today's interview. Professor Carrick is presently a senior research fellow at Bedfordshire Center for Mental Health Research in association with the University of Cambridge in the U.K., Don't ask me how he keeps up with all this. He has assembled the world's largest database of dynamic, computerized, post outcomes related to traumatic brain injury, neurodegenerative disease, and movement disorders assembled from thousands of patients around the globe. Now listen, I know you might not even know what that means. The point is, this guy knows neuroscience, and he knows traumatic brain injury, and these are the things that we're going to touch on today. Dr. Kerrick's published scientific articles have appeared in the prestigious journals of Gait and Posture, Disability and Rehabilitation, Frontiers Public Health, Biomedical Science Instrumentation, Journal of Biomechanics, Current Pharmaceutical Design, Brain Injury, Neurorehabilitation, clinical neurophysiology, and on and on and on and on and on. Listen, guys, this is not even the long version of Professor Carrick's curriculum vitae. This is the shortened version. I just wanted to make sure that you understood who I'm talking with today and who you're listening to. In today's podcast, I expose just the surface of what's possible when we really look at the human brain in all its majesty, as Professor Carrick would say, through the lens of functional neurology. We cover topics from TBI, that's traumatic brain injury, to the importance of eye movements. And listen, if the study of the neurology of eye movements sounds boring to you, I hope this brief conversation brings the topic to life for you, because as you start to see what can be done, you realize anything is possible. Enjoy. welcome to vibrant potential we provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress fatigue and chronic health challenges as well as optimizing your performance in fitness relationship and business we use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies including brain-based approaches inspired fitness tips emotional intelligence coaching and spiritual growth techniques so you can live the life you want connect deeply with others and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Dr. Chris Frickman here. We are with Dr. Ted Carrick, the father of functional neurology. Sir, it's a great honor to have you on my show. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Well, good to be here, Chris. Good morning to you. So I wanted to start out so that people kind of have a little bit of a background. Can you first tell us, uh, in your own words, because who better to tell us, what is functional neurology?
1: Well, that's a whole mouthful of of things to talk about. Functional neurology is, I think, at the the basis, uh, neurology without the use of drugs or surgery that is specifically designed to increase the, the function, if you would. Of uh, of human endeavors, specifically at the nervous system. So, functional neurology is a, a discipline that is multidisciplinary in its uh, in its effect, where we have physicians from many different disciplines will embrace a functional approach of improving uh, different types of abilities of humankind, rather than specifically identifying or targeting pathological processes
0: nice so it's actually a way uh it's it's one way that we can look at the brain the nervous system and not just wait, sort of wait to be broken and then get back to like this sort of status quo point it's actually at any point we could if we wanted to an individual could actually pursue uh, what you might call optimal health like what you might call um just improved function is that correct
1: well I think that's pretty safe to say at the end of the day uh what happens with many people is that they can have an injury or they can have an insult to the nervous system whether it be a stroke or a concussion or, or a disease of sorts and then that can be treated uh, conventionally with some pretty good outcomes but but that's pretty well it so at the end of the day uh, functional neurology really looks at the integrity of the of the person individually and then promotes and gives them things that might be able to change their life to improve their life or to increase the the function of their their neurological system whether it be a methodology of getting someone to be able to walk that couldn't walk correctly before or to think better do better scholastically or to uh, to live with uh, with a disability Um, but being able to escape from that. So to to look at a tailored type of approach to individual problems that is specific to them and not generic or cookie-cutted, that would be something that every other person would do.
0: Got it, got it. So you just, I mean, in my mind, you just said a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just going to pick one little thing out of what you said, and you said, think better. I'm wondering if you can elucidate on that. How can you help someone to think better? Could, if someone came to you and wanted to literally be smarter, could you help them with that?
1: Well, that's the test of time that we can see with outcome studies and exams and that. But in general, when we look at um, human thought or the ability to learn activity or to be smart, as your as your friends would say... <laughs> We've got different types of memory, and one of them is a working memory, and that has been referred to as short-term memory by people. And that has a physiological basis, which means to say that there is both areas in the brain that we understand are associated with learning and thinking. And we do have ways that we can make these things work a little bit better. And I know I've got noise in the background here because there's some workers over doing some things, but that's going to make me think even a little bit more. So
0: (laughs) it sounds like they're uh, maybe blowing some leaves or something like that.
1: Oh man. So uh, basically this is something that everyone wants to do. And the answer is if you have an examination coming up or you are trying to learn something to learn how to drive a car or boat or, or just be able to embrace different things. Uh, We certainly have techniques that can make you do that better. We also have techniques that will allow teachers to be able to teach things better so that people will have a greater probability of learning them. One thing that we found with educational research is that the abilities to learn is again, very individual. You've heard people say, well, I'm a visual learner or I'm an auditory learner sure. or, or I'm not a learner. Uh, <laughs> we, we can, we can examine somebody and we can find out what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then we can tailor different things that they might be able to do to maximize their ability to, to remember things better or, or as you say, to be smarter. Now we can't take somebody who's not very smart and make them a genius, but we can with great success make people, uh, learn better and to be able to retain things better and to be able to apply them better than they could be without us. And that is very significant, whether it means that, uh, you could take a, a D student and make them a B student that can change their life. But yeah. really, you know, more so than just the, the examinations, Chris, the things that are exciting for humankind is to really be able to embrace all of the, all of the world that is magic for them at a, at a better capacity than they could before. And these are things that um, we're learning to do better each day. And it's exciting to be alive in 2015. The, the future is very, very bright for all of these primary concerns that, that we all have.
0: Just for a little bit more background too, so, so thank you for telling us about uh, functional neurology. Could you tell us, how did you get started in that?
1: Oh, sure, yeah. I've had a lot of experience with different types of syndromes, and uh, one of the syndromes that, that I've seen just a lot of over the last almost 40 years are people that are in vegetative states or what we call uh, coma. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, uh, I have literally traveled the world uh, to attend these people. It's it's almost impossible to move them. Some of them are on life support. Many of them are in intensive care units or what we call reanimation units. So I had a a lot of experience with that. Some good, some some not so successful, some miraculous and some uh, not good at all uh, Over the years. It's the reality of it. But in, in treating people that have had, we're going to say minimally conscious states that have injured their brain that uh, can't move or talk or walk and looking at the outcomes or the strategies that, that I was able to develop as a consequence of, you know, my journeys there we were really able to take a lot of that information that we found to be successful in that type of patient and apply it to patients whose uh, consciousness was not in a coma, but was reduced or attenuated from what they might have had. So uh, I learned a lot, you know, fairly early. And again, looking at things almost 40 years ago, um, I found that I was much better 35 years ago than I was 40 years ago and then better 30 years ago than I was 35. And hopefully uh, next year I'll, I'll know a lot more than uh, than this year. But very humbly speaking, the things that we learn as a consequence of our experience or that doctors learn is something that you can't translate from a book or from somebody else's story. It's that hands-on, bedside uh, caring and mm-hmm. Uh, dedication to to the service of humankind above self that really has made a difference in my life and and I think in the lives of uh, of many other uh, other people
0: well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that attitude of service. There's been a lot of people, including myself and my patients that have benefited because of that who is getting who's getting traumatic brain injuries out there right now Well uh,
1: unfortunately, traumatic brain injuries have become an epidemic uh, to all ages of society. They largely occur from falls in the elderly. And elderly, it depends on who you are, can be over 50, which is pretty scary for those of us that are tapping on 70. Uh, <laughs> but uh, people can fall and hit their heads. Uh, we, we talk about, or, or people will say, well, what's a traumatic brain injury? Well, we've got some that we say are mild, and they're really not so mild. And then severe ones where we have penetrating injuries or someone shot in the head or they've got, you know, a wound in there. But the majority of these brain injuries are what we refer to as concussions. It's an old term, but it's a good term. And it really comes from the Latin, which means the, the Latin is concussus. Uh, trivia, trivia question, but it means sort of like to strike together or to shake something pretty violently, con- Contour uh, is, is the word. So the brain gets shaken and it can be shaken when you just sort of turn around and walk into a wall or slip or fall or have a car accident. But what we see is an acceleration of this type of epidemiological event, this terrible event in young people doing sports. And you know that, you know, the younger you are, usually the faster you are, you know, compared to your granddad or somebody else. So I see personally just a big score of professional athletes, uh, soccer players, hockey players, football players, baseball players, as, as well as Olympians and collegiate athletes. And, and I, I see skiers and bobsledders and just people that, are a little bit better than most of us that do things a little faster, a little stronger, and a little more beautifully than the rest of the world. These are the people that put themselves out there, and they have these catastrophic injuries to their brain. You read about them every day in the paper. Someone gets a shot to their head or rings their bell, and then they can't see as well. They can't hear as well. They've got fog, uh, and and their life has changed. So uh, these head injuries that we see, especially in sports, are because young people are bigger than they used to be. They're stronger than they used to be. They train better, and they train all year round. When I was a kid playing hockey, you'd play hockey, and then the snow would melt, and you'd play baseball, then <laughs> you'd right. play football. These guys, they don't. They take a sport, and they become so great. So the speed, for instance, of a hockey player skating, uh, coupled with better equipment and and knowledge and training is such that when they collide or they, they whack their heads together or they go into the boards, they do it with an increased velocity and an increased bang that we just didn't see before. So sports concussion is a, is a big thing and we call it now, you know, mild traumatic brain injuries, but they're, they're concussions and uh, these people get a loss of uh, of brain function. They have a problem thinking and, and a variety of other things. Now, Every year I do the uh, concussion lecture for these new draftees for the NHL out in Los Angeles that are pretty well these elite, you know, kids, young men, um, largely 18 years old or so. And and I was shocked to realize that most of them have already had seven concussions before they're even in the NHL. And it's, it's just amazing. And, of course, when we're looking at – society and the things that we like to do and these extreme sports and that uh, we're going to have uh, these things happen so uh, the bottom line is is that head injuries are going to occur they're occurring more than they've ever occurred and as a consequence we need to have physicians trained to to take care of people when they just don't get better by rest for instance
0: Okay. So you mentioned people having seven concussions or more, right? I mean, it's a pretty scary thing. Can you talk a little bit about traumatic brain injury and multiple traumatic brain injuries? In other words, I guess what I'm getting at is I've seen patients myself and I've heard stories of others that they'll have a, what in their mind is a, is maybe an accident, uh, whether it was a sports accident, a motor vehicle accident or what have you, uh, maybe thrown off a horse, they'll have like a large accident and they'll think, well, I could see how someone would get hurt from that. But I felt like I walked away and they had relatively few sequelae from it. And then the next time something happens, let's say it's it might be like a really small thing, like the kind of thing where you, you're talking with someone and you're like, okay, see you later. You turn around and you think you're walking through a door and you walk into the door frame instead. <laughs> and, and you feel just kind of silly about it, like, oh, whoops. But after that, then sometimes some symptoms might start showing up for people. Uh, they might... You know, ever since, ever since that day, and they might not even associate it with that day at first, uh, they start having maybe some fatigue or some other symptoms. Can you tell us why that might be?
1: Well, you're a talented doctor, and what you've observed is what other people have observed, and it's the big question. Is it the, the, the big one that does the worst, or it's the little one? No one really knows. I mean, that's the answer. And what you find is that, We don't really know the state of our brains usually until we get hurt and we get examined. People just don't do the due diligence to go to a specialist and say, Hey, check my brain out. Uh, I haven't hurt myself. Uh, I just want to know, you know, how it's working. For instance, maybe you're not learning as well as you can. Maybe you're not walking as great as you can. Maybe you're not doing a variety of things. So now I'm really so happy that we see so many young athletes that are sent to us from around the world uh simply to to get baseline measurements of their brain function and my my word the some of these kids for instance young kids have got terrible uh functionality when we test them and they don't even have a history of having a concussion, so one can go back. It depends what a wizard you are. Some people can see things, other people can't, and can think of well, maybe your grandfather had a brain injury, or maybe you were dropped when you were born, or who knows what happens. If you've had a kid, the first time they get up and walk uh, is just a prelude to your heart attack when they smack their heads into the coffee table. So when we look at the the status of humankind realistically. People have head injuries every day of their life. And uh, sometimes we don't really notice if you jump off a curb or if you're uh, jumping out of a plane or something like this, you can hurt your head. What we do know, however, is that repetitive head injuries are just not good. Uh, they are associated with a, with a big syndrome, big words, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. Better to say CTE because it's easier. But what it means is that, you have the accumulation of, of a protein, it's called tau, mm-hmm. that lays down, you know, in the front of your brain and in the area of your brain that's associated with memory. You see tau in, in Alzheimer's disease, for instance. So we're seeing the same uh, type of distribution of that protein in younger people that are associated with repetitive head injuries. And we really don't know why. Uh, some people think that we don't eat it up, you know, get rid of it. And some people think that we're making more of it. Uh, I've got my own thoughts on this, but they're, we're in the middle of, of checking a lot of things. So here's, here's the, uh, the defining end of it all. If you've got a brain, you should have it checked out by somebody before you have the injury. Very important because. One, if you've got some problems, then they can be addressed, you know, usually fairly easily and functionally. But the other thing is, is that if you do have the bad luck to, to hit your head, then your doctor's got something to compare it with. Because 90% of the people that we see come in and they've got some terrible symptoms, but uh, we don't know what's new and what's old. So you need to to have a baseline. So there's a whole load of baseline tests that are pretty common now, even in middle schools and high schools. And those baseline tests are basically pencil and paper and computerized tests where people can sit down and they can get a score that's going to tell them about verbal memory, you know, how they, how they, uh, remember words or visual memory and, and executive functions of thinking. But what people don't have is a very, Good functional neurological examination, which measures the speed of response of different muscles to different environmental stressors, how your balance is, uh, how you think when there's many things that are happening at the same time, etc. So b- back to your, your question of uh, what did the damage, the big one or the small one, we just don't know. What we do think, however, is that if your brain is not working so great and you get it walloped, that you might not do as well as somebody whose brain was working great and got walloped. So I think that that's what's happening, and everyone wants to know because you get someone, a hockey player will get knocked out, and he'll get back up and not a problem at all. And then the next day uh, or, you know, three weeks or a month or a year later, they'll have just a little wee hit and all the world ends around them. And I go, how can the little one do it? when the big one didn't. And and I think the answer is, is that the big one really did it. Uh, But the symptoms that you have do not reflect at all the severity of the injury. Brain function is very adaptable. In other words, um, happiness is a brain function. And if you're happy, well, that's pretty cool. But if you're manic or super, super happy, that may not be cool, or it may be super cool. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. The fact is, is that if you're truly sad, you can't imagine yourself happy. And if you're happy, you can't imagine yourself sad. So the majority of brain functions that we see, the way uh, we regulate, for instance, our heart rate, our breathing rate, the, uh, the amount of, uh, fuel or blood shunting that comes to our tummies and, and goes to the muscles that allow us to move are things that you just don't feel if they're going wrong. You just don't feel it until something's going to happen. You you won't know that you have a a probability of having a serious fall until it occurs. And we find that 70% of people over the age of 40 uh, have a severe pathology of their own balance. They just don't know it Mm -hmm. until something happens. So big injury, little injury, which does more? I can tell you without equivocation that we just don't know. It depends on the brain so that a slight little head injury can be very serious in some person and a big one might not be at all. So what is the take-home point? If if you whack your head, uh, you should see someone that knows what they're doing, that specializes in this, and unfortunately... And I'm not speaking out of school because I'm involved with, with a team of physicians that train other doctors about these things that, that most people are not really trained at it. So they'll say, Hey, you know, how many fingers do you see? It's like Rocky, right? How many fingers do you see? You know, and if they say Adrian or something, well, they're fine to go back into the, into the ring and. It's not the way to do things. You can't look at a head injury like we do at Hollywood and have people whacked on the head with a bottle and then just get up and ride off in the sunset. That doesn't happen in the world. It just doesn't. So get yourself checked and go to someone who, who really, who really specializes in human function. And we've got a lot of them out there now.
0: How can people build up the health of their brain to protect from potential future TBIs or traumatic brain injuries?
1: Well, I don't think you can. I mean, that's the the end of the day. The the reality is, is no matter how your brain is when you go into it, uh, we think, and when I say we, the, the global community thinks that the threshold for concussion is basically an impact that's going to be about 70 to 75 uh, uh, g's, uh, grams. And, and if you take anybody's brain, good or bad, and you whack it at that amount, you're going to hurt yourself. So um, wearing a helmet driving your car might be a good idea, or <laughs> riding uh, you, you know, those things help a little bit. The helmets don't really save us from concussions they save us from getting killed you know more so um but the the idea is when you talk about the prevention of concussion uh, obviously well don't play football don't play hockey and don't go out of your house have someone hold your hands when you're going to the toilet you can do all of these things but it's not realistic so what's going to happen we're going to injure our brains that that's the deal and when you look at a kid you, you know you say man you know my kid wants to play football or that what do you think You don't want them to be, and I say this very kindly, but you don't want them to be, you know, in a bubble. Uh, You don't want them to be weirdos, you know? You want to live your life. Yeah, but you've got to do things um, reasonably. And I think that if you want to protect your brain, especially if your parents are looking at kids, that you should think very seriously about contact sports. Uh, They're sort of dopey. My history, you know, I was a boxer. Uh, growing up and a martial artist. So, I mean, I know what it's like to to give and to take. Hopefully you're giving more than you're taking in those sports. But, you know, football and hockey, the sports that we love, I mean, it's hot dog Sunday and, you know, people are, It's you know, it's more than beer and, and t-shirts. Uh, it's, it's Americana. And uh, whether it be, you know, the soccer in Europe or rugby, you know, down in Australia, wherever you're looking at, people are going to hurt their heads. So the major aspect if you want to prevent a head injury is don't play contact sports. There it is, you know, okay. plain and simple.
0: So you can't take fish oils or somehow chemically, like is a stressed person with tons of cortisol coursing through their brain, is, is that person more likely to have a more severe TBI than the person who's kind of blissed out and eating fish and asparagus every night and having lots of antioxidants and good healthy fats and stuff like that? Any lifestyle stuff like that or is it just the live in a bubble sort of thing?
1: Well, you know, there's all sorts of people that have all sorts of concoctions and formulas, you know, the the fountain of youth. and
0: I, I know um, there are, and I know a lot of them. <laughs> I'm asking you, sir. <laughs> it hasn't been shown. It really hasn't been shown. There's nothing okay.
1: magical about it that's going to say that if you live a certain lifestyle that if you hit your head, you're going to do better than someone that lives a different lifestyle. That's just the, uh, the modality. A lot of it d- depends upon your own genetics. Uh, some people have just got more resilient systems than other people. I'll give you an example. When you look at uh, soccer players, kids, uh, the, the girls have greater uh, brain injuries than boys doing the same thing if they hit a ball. Uh, and not because their brains are different, or not because they didn't eat enough tofu or something. It's because their necks are not developed as well, and they they don't have the resiliency in their individual uh, in their individual heads, or that when they head the ball, they the forces are not distributed through their neck and their core as with somebody else. Uh, the The thing the thing that we do know is that. Blood supply to the brain is very, very important. And the blood is going to bring different nutrients to the brain. And there are some basic uh, essential uh, nutrients or minerals and, and vitamins that everyone needs. If you don't have those, your brain's not going to be as good as someone that does. So, of course, we recommend people to, to embrace a, a diet or a regime that is, you know, maximal for their health. And we we would hope that if they do this, that they might be better off than somebody uh, that didn't. Uh, for instance, if somebody is, um, is hypertense, for instance, and has got some uh, morbid health issues, that person, we think, might not do as well as someone that's healthy. But I can tell you, I see uh, celebrity patients, people that are world famous, that have got dieticians, and they've got nutritionists, and they've got natural health doctors, and these people are like the temples of health, and they can get whacked, and, and all hell breaks loose. It's terrible, and I also attend people that are homeless, and alcoholics, and druggies that fall down and whack their heads that don't do so badly. So it's really an individual aspect and there's really not one formula which makes, you know, the job of the doctor very, very exciting. We just can't say with a blanket that if you do this, this, and this, then you're going to be better off. And I would suggest when we look at our patients that have dementia, Alzheimer's, different neurodegenerative diseases... These people come from a big cross-section of society. Uh, some people live pristine lives, I mean, out of the textbook, and are demented when they're 45 or 50, and other people abuse the heck out of themselves and are doing, are doing better. Years ago, I did some research in the Caucasus Mountains uh, of the Soviet Union before the wall fell down, and, and I examined people that were 110 years old and these guys would smoke two packs of cigarettes per day and drink a jug of vodka. Well, I don't know if I would recommend that regime, but it sure makes sense looking at them. So I think that when you talk about, you know, the fish oils and things like this, hey, why not? I mean, um, it, it makes sense. I mean, if you could put everything in your bag that gives you the greatest probability, or people like CoQ10, they like, you know, vitamin E's, uh, you know, B vitamins. I, I think that the basic thing is, is to eat as best as you can and to make sure that you get the, your daily uh, essential uh, minerals and, and vitamins and, um, you know, don't be so overweight, walk every day, uh, talk, use your mind, don't sit in your chair too long, that you got a better probability. But the reality is we just don't know. Okay.
0: Okay. I talk so much about eye movements with my patients, and I think it'd be fun for people to listen to hear like a little bit about these eye movements there's a lot of different eye movements that that we take a look at that we observe as functional neurologists, and this is all stuff that I have learned essentially uh, either directly or indirectly from you, like a vestibular ocular reflex, um, the ability to hold a gaze or a pursue an object or to jump from one object to another we call it a saccade i'm wondering if you can talk to people about why should they care about that so in one sense of course it's like well they don't need to i mean their functional neurologist will care for it but just for a point of interest for people of like just just so they have like some kind of um concept of what that does for uh if if i have a dysfunctional ability to saccade what does that do for my ability to read? What does that do for my ability to cross a soccer ball across the field to one of my teammates? How does that show up in in my life?
1: I love the question, Chris, and let me do the best to to answer it. I know
0: it's like a 12-hour answer. I know that. Oh, it's a lifetime answer. Yeah.
1: uh, People need to understand about eye movements. And one of the things that we do is we – Instruct families on things to look at and they become pretty good at it. They're, they're not difficult to see. And the basic thing is people always talk about movements, but the, the essential aspect of movement of the eye is to not move your eyes. So in other words, can you look at something and can you see it? So if you can imagine, um, uh, going through the fun house, you know, at Disney and all of a sudden you see all this blurring and movement, you're going to s- slow down. You're not gonna feel so stable. So one of the things that we need to have in in humankind is the ability to look at something and keep it in focus. And in order to do that, sometimes we need to move our eyes to keep them on the object. And sometimes we need to have our eyes still. Anytime the eyes are moving when they won't move, your human performance is going to decrease. That you can take to the bank. The important aspect with eye movement, uh, whether you're following you know someone that's you know walking across a beach or you're at Daytona, you know at the races and you're watching the cars around the track mm-hmm. or you know mm-hmm. watching the kids running, is that uh, the the mechanisms in order to do what we think is simple and take for granted are very, very complicated. So if we could summarize it in, in a way that, People can understand the majesty of simply being able to watch something, you know, follow something, move in front of you like a car or walking, walking, you know, people walking at the mall. Uh, Your whole brain has got to be intact to be able to do that well, very, very simply. So what we find is um, or what we know to be true is that our ability to walk has been dependent on our ability to see. Human beings are different than a lot of animals because our eyes are in the front of our head, not like on the side, like rabbits or other things. And we also have an area in our eye that allows us to focus very specifically on targets and it's not so very big. It's called your fovea. And we do, your brain does everything to make sure that that little piece of your eye is lined up with a target. And if you go off five degrees from that target, you're not going to see so well, or things are not going to be crisp. Uh, You may be able to have good vision at the optometrist, but the reds may not be as, as red as they could be. The blues may not be like the sky that you dreamt about in Provence. And people that injure their heads find this. We do different tests to look at their appreciation of colors and things like that. So Your brain does a lot of things to make sure that your eyes are going to focus uh, on targets. And if your brain is injured, then you can't do this. And so what happens is uh, your doctor is going to be able to see that your eyes are moving differently. Or we used to say that if you went to buy a car from someone who was sort of uh, an unscrupulous character, we'd say they were those shifty uh, type of salesmen or their eyes would be moving and jerking. And of course on tv you know you'd see them you know in skits and things and uh so we see these jerky eye movements or square weave jerks or things well basically when you're looking at someone and they're looking at you their eyes shouldn't be jerky if they are uh, there's something wrong well your doctor if if he or she is trained is going to know what that something is and they're going to know whether or not that something is congenital, you're born with it, or whether you can fix it. Uh, Fortunately, most of these things we can fix. Now, you had mentioned in your preamble to the question about reading and the necessity of having eye movements. Well, basically, reading is a big problem, and illiteracy is a huge, huge problem. It's addressed by, you know, Rotary International and other groups, but our society has got a big problem with kids that are dyslexic they can't read very well and that's an area that's very central to me because i'm the principal investigator in a very large study that we're starting in the united states that we've run uh, in paris and in germany uh, specific to identifying kids that can't read And then to do things to make them read better. And let me tell you, when you get a kid that can't read, they develop behavioral problems because they don't learn. You can't read. You can't learn. And then uh, they get frustrated. People think, boy, they're not smart and and they can be brilliant and on and on. So when you read something, you actually are going to have your eyes jump from word to word to word. And when they jump from word to word to word, we can measure this. We can measure the uh... the efficiency of that we can see if they've got any hesitations in in the jumps we can see if the jumps are not on target they're going too far or uh... or or too low and then what we do is we can look at them following different targets Well, what we find is that kids that can't work they also can't follow targets very well in other words they they have to have their eyes jerk even when they're looking at something that's moving smooth, or they have these catch-up movements of their eyes that have fast movements when you should have slow movements, or slow movements when you should have fast movements. Well, here's the great news of this. Uh, we can find that when we identify kids, or even adults, that don't read well, we have developed uh, certain uh, techniques that largely people can do on their own um, to, to make them read better. And, and and to increase their brain function. It's very, very exciting. And uh, we have a randomized control trial uh, that will be starting in the United States in January. And we hope to be able to change lives uh, with that. It's a worldwide effort uh, to, to really look at that. And then my colleagues at uh, University of Cambridge in England, we have other experiments Uh, Where I'm fortunate to be the principal investigator where we're looking at not only dyslexia, the inability to read, but other aspects when people have uh, psychosocial problems or problems with reality or concentration. And what we find at the end of the day is that there's not there's not any brain function that isn't associated with with eye movements or the lack of them. What does that mean for society or what does it mean for our physician networks? It really means that eye movement examinations are now becoming not only standard and necessary, but they've become so sophisticated due to the availability of advanced computerized technology that allows us to record them and to measure them in ways that we had only dreamed of before. So one thing that we find with with kids that don't do well or with people with Alzheimer's or with people with head injuries is that if you say like on your market set, go with the target or you, you get them to look at something and you give them another target, the time it takes for them uh, when they have the target presented to the time that the eyes move to that target We call it a latency. Well, we've got numbers for that. In other words, we're going to say that if you're, you know, 30 years old and something comes into your field of vision, you should have your eyes move to that target within 150 milliseconds. Well, 150 milliseconds, Chris, is so darn fast you can't see it, Um, but we can measure it. And what we find is that when people can't move or initiate a movement as fast as they can, we can get a number on that. And then we can do some very, very elegant types of interventions uh, without drugs and without surgery that can correct that. uh, And that uh, correlates with different changes in brain function. Now, just going a little further on the other end of the spectrum, uh, this year in 2015, I presented um, the results of of our randomized controlled trial in the treatment of individuals who had suffered an acute stroke. Acute stroke means you're not getting blood supply to part of your brain. And we looked at people that had an infarction, the loss of blood supply in the territory of the middle cerebral artery, which is pretty well the biggest blood supply to the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, what we had observed, and these are patients that are in the intensive care unit, is that these patients, all of them, all of them, had problems uh, following targets and they didn't do it well and they had increased latency, so at the time to move to the target. So, what we did is we divided a large group of people that had strokes into different components of our trial. We treated all of them with the standard medical care for strokes in the ICU, but one group, we gave them eye movement exercises that we prescribed very specifically. Uh, to the side of the brain that was involved. And what we found and what we presented at International Stroke was that we had changes in virtually all of the uh, measurements that people do to quantify stroke. We had changes in the NIH Stroke Scale, statistically significant changes as well as changes in the uh, electroencephalographic activity, which is when we put electrodes on the head, we can measure it and and on and on and on. So uh, getting back to to the breadth of your question, which is probably the biggest question one could ever ask someone and try to summarize it. uh, Eye movements are central to brain function. We know a lot about them. Uh, These are things that people should have tested from someone who measures eye movements. Now, measuring eye movements is not getting your eyes examined to see if you need glasses. It right. means to say, yeah, someone who, and largely we think uh, trained in functional neurology that has uh, advanced certification in the role of brain and function and disease in correlation with these eye movements. I can tell you for sure that if you're, we'll get, for instance, a, uh, we'll get one of these champion boxers that will come in. And when that person can't move the rise to the left as fast as the right, he better be watching out because that, that right hook from the other guy yeah. going to walk him right in his head. So uh, these things are again, back to I guess your third or fourth question, what can you do to prevent uh, concussions? Well, if you can see what's happening in your environment, you've got a greater probability that you're going to get out of dodge and and not get hit or or a variety of things. But God bless you for uh, having that expertise in eye movements and talking to your patients. It really is a lifetime endeavor. We know what happens throughout the ages. We have normative data. Uh, We know what to do when things go wrong. But here's the beautiful thing. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. It's something that uh, an individual patient can't see themselves. A doctor can't see it because you need sophisticated equipment to actually measure it, give you the numbers, just like you know what your blood pressure is or your cholesterol levels are or your homocysteine levels or you know, on and on and on. Uh, I would suggest that these functions are so central and I'm going to give you a projection, you're gonna hear it now, that by within 10 years as a consequence of our investigations and the investigations of others throughout the world, that these eye movement examinations will be standard uh, starting, you know, in kindergarten and grade one every year uh, up to the end of time. They are that important.
0: If someone has a latency in their ability to saccade to a target, and, and what I mean by that is if you if someone's looking at something in front of them, say I've got a coffee mug here on my on my desk as I'm talking to you. Say I'm looking at this coffee mug in front of me, And then someone walks in the door behind me into my office and my ability to have my eyes move from the coffee boom over to the person that's walking in, how long that takes me. If that's much longer than what is standard or normal or healthy or optimal, when you measured that in in some of your work that you've done, do you see changes not only in the latency of eye movement, but is there any corollary change in uh, what I'll call like a thought latency, like an ability to, to think and respond to your environment, uh, whether it's a conversation or an animal running at you or whatever, and are there any corollary uh, emotional changes with that? It is huge. Mm-hmm.
1: As a matter of fact, uh, if you're going to have anything done, Uh, you're going to get a greater bang for your buck if you measure these latencies. uh, And and the latencies that you can measure that give you the greatest bang for your buck are what we call the time it takes you uh, to make an anti-saccade. And what we do is we give a person a target and tell them when you see the target, move your eyes to the opposite side to where that target would be equal and opposite. And people that have executive functional problems, as you discussed, uh, problems thinking or conceptual problems, concentration, that they don't do well on that test uh, at all. There's a statistical difference between uh, normal adults and demented adults or people with Alzheimer's, very, very significant. But what we found very interestingly is that there's a group that's sort of in the in-between. They're not demented, but they're getting a little old. And what we do is we see these trends. So if they, if they start to slow down, it's not a good sign. It means to say that uh, they're at risk. And when it comes to the nervous system and function, uh, eye movements, as, as you had suggested, are really uh, very powerful, important, beautiful uh, aspects to give us a window into humankind.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. So I want to ask sort of in closing, um, do you do anything that uh that you're willing to share? Do you do anything for your own brain health, like a specific thing? Like uh maybe it's an exercise, a diet, or whatever.
1: Well, everything that I do is for my own brain health, you know, whether it's conscious or not conscious. So I can tell you what the literature says I'll tell you what I what I do. Uh, if you put a rat in a treadmill, they do better than rats that don't move around the cage. Mm-hmm. I hate treadmills, and I don't like rats so much. I work with them on a regular basis in my research, but uh, walking every day is is really a gift that you can have for yourself. Uh, it's really just super a uh, good thing to do. the The other thing that's good in regards to to diet is to ensure that you you know have your essential nutrients and. There's a, there's a few companies out there that have some very good products. Um, a few of them have had uh, some very good randomized control trials that show significant, uh, significant changes in people. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is exercise and moving and then using your brain, thinking and, and challenging yourself conceptually. Movement is by far the greatest stimulation to the brain. Once you sit your butt in that chair... Uh, it's hard for you to get out of it, and that means to say, cognitively or physically. So, don't sit down. You know, don't uh, be a slave to the to the TV. Get up and walk around is really a gift that you can that you can give yourself, and to involve yourself with purposeful thoughts uh, and and things like you know, like chess, other things to to really make yourself think.
0: Chess is a cool thing because one of the things why it's so good for your brain is that you're thinking more than one step ahead, right? So that involves a lot of executive function or frontal lobe function. One last question for you. Have you heard of a supplement that, that's being put out called EHT? EHT? Yeah, EHT. It's specifically being... The age-defying supplement that everyone's going nuts on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ask you because I heard that Dr. Amen actually talked about it. And I'm I'm curious yeah. what you think about it.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's exciting. There's all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's some experimental evidence that if you look at this rho family, this RHO family, that if they're activated aberrantly, that we develop these very small gtpases and what that does is it promotes cancer you know things go wrong there so people have been looking at the development of very small molecules that will knock it out or inhibit this row gtpase function now most of the the efforts that focus on these inhibitors do this by looking at the enzymes that are involved in what we call this post-translational processing or the, the downstream protein kinase effectors some big words there. So at the end of the day, uh, there's been the identification of this EHT. There's a big push around people that's happened, oh, I think over the last 10 years in regards to EHT uh, to, to look at this downstream signaling and transformation of cellular function that involves different nucleotide displacement. I think it's exciting. Um, Daniel likes it. Other people like it. But especially in regards to cancer prophylactes or you know protecting yourself, I think it may be super promising. Uh, we're certainly going to need some RCTs. So here's the deal: if, if you wait Randomized for all-
0: clinical trials, everyone right. If you if you wait for all of the trials, which
1: are very complicated. Uh, you might be dead, so you don't, <laughs> don't want to take things. You don't want to take things that are not proven, but you don't want to take things that are bad. Uh, so EHT, I think, is is in this uh, in this group that shows that there's a whole load of experimental evidence that it can sort of be productive, and it's like, well. It doesn't seem to be any any downfall. So here's the end that I would say to you. I think it's very exciting. I think it's probably great. And I think a lot of people, if you have that phenotype or if you have cancer in your family uh, and you want to look at protective activities, I probably would say, why not?
0: Okay. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. I appreciate your, uh, your feedback about that man I, like i could definitely sit on the on skype here and and chat for another couple of hours about some of the stuff i but thank you so much for your time. Uh, is there anything that like you're pumped about or you're excited about that you'd like to, to just share with people really quick before we get off?
1: Well, I'm excited about a lot of things in the world of science and healthcare. And the thing that we have to remember is to be very, very humble because the things that we know for sure today are probably going to be tomorrow's history lesson. Uh, so if you look at, at things that we thought, you know, in – Oh, you know, in ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia or in Greece or Rome uh, to, throughout the Renaissance and even looking at the the great expansion of neurological knowledge that that occurred, you know, in the uh, in the mid and late 18th century. That was like, you know, fact at the day. Well, much of that stuff has been disproven, and I would expect that much of what we consider to be gospel today will will probably be disproven as well. And I think that we must be able to embrace change and to hold out for hope and realize that our health care today is better than it's ever been. But my big push, the thing that really makes me get up in the morning, is that I really believe that we're going to be able to do it better tomorrow and then better thereafter. So it's a great time to be on the planet in spite of all of the the terrible things and the conflicts that we're having. uh, We're understanding more about who we are, what we are, and why we're here. And we're living longer than we've ever lived before. We're getting more diseases as a consequence of living longer. And when people died at 40, we didn't have so many uh, cases of Alzheimer's disease. That's not the case right now. So I think that um, people must be able to prepare for a longer life and all of the financial demands on that, of course. But the fact that um, you need to take care of your brain, uh, everything else can sort of go on you, But if you can't think and you, you can't love and and you can't embrace some great things, I think it can be not a beautiful place for you. So I'm excited that we're going to know more and I'm dedicated to, to more trials to be able to help us to do that a little bit better.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, my good man.
1: Take good care and keep up the service to others. It's very impressive. Okay. Thank you, sir.
0: Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.